Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week... I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. We're nearly at Christmas, and this is the penultimate podcast of the year. Where's it gone? And I do hope you're not having any Christmas piss-ups this year. You know you're not allowed unless you're a bloody Tory. Those god-awful people. Well, this week I had a good old chinwag with painter Charlie Peters. Charlie and I showed in the same exhibition earlier this year, which was Thorpe Stabry's sensational factory project. Charlie creates highly detailed paintings that are just oozing cultural references from the 90s and possibly even slipping into the 80s. In this episode, we touch on a very interesting subject, that being artists taking on commissions from global corporations, which is exactly what Charlie done a little while ago. She tells of the benefits and drawbacks beyond completion. Another interesting point Charlie speaks of is her accessibility into entering both an MA and PhD courses, which has changed quite a lot in recent years. There's going to be another little message the other side of this podcast, so please hang around once we've finished chatting. But until then, please join me over Zoom as I spoke to Charlie Peters. Uh, so before I moved to London, I lived in Leeds for about five years, but I grew up in Birmingham, so... You know, but, but London feels like home to me. I feel like a Londoner now. And do you go back to Birmingham often? I mean, I always did go back for like Christmas and Easter and stuff, like sort of, you know, family holiday type times. But I mean, like since COVID, I've been back once. I went, yeah. I went in August for a couple of days, but until then I hadn't been for probably about nearly two years. I didn't, and- you know, I went back for Christmas before COVID and then I just couldn't, there wasn't a time where I could have gone back. And does that feel like you're going back home or does it feel something different now? Yeah, no, it's like I'm, I'm visiting. Like, I couldn't live there. I wouldn't want to live there. I like, I like my life here. 
Yeah. Um, you know, obviously I love all my family there, but you know, three or four days and I'm, a, I'm sort of itching to get back to my life and my friends and the studio. And, you know, it feels like um, a break from my, the real me. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's funny how you adapt like that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I, I, when I moved to London, like London's a kind of magical, special place, I think, where, you know, if you've always felt a little bit like not like other people around you, like I think a lot of artists do, do you know what I mean? You're not really the default person at school. No. Usually I was always the weirdo that no one really wanted to hang out with. <laughs> but when I came to London, I met my best friends that I've ever had, you know, and it's like, you find your people in the end in life, I think. And I've definitely found my tribe in London, you know. Excellent. Oh, good. Nice <laughs> stuff. Well, as you may have heard, Charlie, I've got seven questions that I ask each artist. The first being, um, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know your work? Okay, so I think, I mean, I think my work in, in some ways is very easy to explain. It's very visual. So you can look at it and kind of feel things and take what you want from it. Um, there's, there's levels of complexity to it. But the main thing I would say is that it's, I think I make abstract paintings or at least paintings that are aware of the legacy of abstraction. So I use very knowing references to types of abstract paintings. So abstract expressionism the sort of Californian hard edge, and also maybe more recent sort of references like pop cultural things as well. So there's also, as long as it, as well as it being like kind of non-representational, there's also things in my paintings that are strangely familiar of maybe a life lived in the contemporary times, like staring at the internet or, you know, staring at a screen. So it's like abstraction for people that watch too much TV is probably a good way to describe it. Uh, that works very well. Yeah. I like the, the pixelated flame. And yeah, I mean, I love all that stuff. I mean, that my, I think the paintings I make are very much influenced by loads of stuff that I've just absorbed throughout my life. And I was always a kid that spent a lot of time inside. I was always like an indoors kid, never wanted to be out in the garden or anything. I just wanted to be left alone, watching TV, you know, and drawing in my bedroom. And, you know, when I was old enough that I had uh, a computer, yeah, I that was like a whole world of like wonder for me, like doing really rudimentary bits of coding and making these kinds of, you know, dreadful then like 16 bit graphics, like move around the screen. Excellent. Um, and honestly, I think what I do now is just like a big like mega mix of stuff that I've looked at and loved throughout yeah. my life. And did you start that um, coding off your own back or was it friends who've done it as well? Or was you influenced by a teacher or? No, I mean, I had... Um, I had a friend that had a much cooler computer than me, but I think we only went, I went around to her house on a Saturday. She had a Commodore 64 and we just played games on that. We really of didn't course. do any coding. But when I got my Spectrum, it came with a little handbook and I was like, oh, this sounds really, really cool. And it was the most basic coding, you know, the stuff where, I don't know if you ever did it when you were like a teenager, you'd look like 10, like go to 20, 20, if X equals Y press Z, you know, and it would take three hours to do like, you know, like a whole line of coding yeah. and you would just press the button and it would just draw a line, you know, like after exactly. all that, it'd be like so much effort for nothing, but it still, it still felt like magic. Like I'd made something happen by putting in this incomprehensible, you know, garbage into the keyboard <laughs> and then like something like really cool happened. Yeah. yeah. Well, I started doing computers at school in my, I think it was my last year of senior school. 
and the coding was that and all year we was in groups of three i think and all year we was doing coding like you said yeah. line one line 10 20 um to allow for i think it was to allow for errors and inputs but at the end of the year we had this matchstick figure that walked along the screen and <laughs> and it but the best thing was its eye was like where its cheek should be you know where where's one of us had, had messed up the coding and it was just this um sort of matchstick figure limping across the screen with, you know, with some weird eye, you know. Like so much effort to get something rubbish out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what we achieved at the end of that. But, um, yeah, I think I'd ended up um, not even having a computer. I think the first computer I had was when I was about 32. Well, bearing in mind, I was in, I was in jail for a yeah. lot of that. Um, so that, yeah, that put paid to that. Did you have, always have art in the home? Oh, I mean, I was all, that's all I did. Art was my best friend as a Excellent. kid. Like being in my room drawing was the thing that I did just to, you know, keep me going. I, you know, I, as I say, I like being indoors. I sort of, I have a brother and a sister, but they're much older than me. They'd both sort of like grown up and left home by the time I was born. So I sort of oh, grew so up. So you was essentially an only child. Essentially, that's what, how I grew up. Yeah. And um. And my mum left when I was about seven, I think, to go and live with someone else. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was horribly shy and, you know, introverted and anxious for most of my childhood. And the only time I really felt good was when I was in my room drawing. And I loved drawing pictures of like robots and spaceships and dinosaurs and these magical like imaginary worlds. Um, and I'm, I think I've just gone through life carrying on like <laughs> just, yeah just making just stuff. developed it yeah yeah stuff from like inside of my head like I think probably I went through a phase when I was younger of not really liking the real world very much and so I just invented my own that made Excellent. me feel, made me feel good yeah we've, I've heard that a few times on here from from different artists it is exactly as you said just creating a new world to play in yeah, exactly. In a world where you don't have, I mean, like, I found it really hard to make friends. I wasn't really interested in other kids. I just wanted to be left alone to, to yeah, to make up a, a world where I felt happy. Do you reckon, and you, you haven't got an answer, this is just something that came in my head, but do you think that was through an insecurity of mum leaving? I mean, probably. I think, I mean, I think one of the things I've realised quite recently, actually, is that like kids are super resilient, right? And you don't know anything different to, no. what, to, the, to the stuff you're handed yeah. in life, yeah? You just get on with it. And I think I didn't realise the impact that had on me until very, very recently. And I sat wow. back and thought, actually, that, that was quite a big thing. I was very, very lonely as a kid and very yeah. insecure and upset. And most of my childhood was spent with me having horrible stomach aches. That's all I remember. Wow. And, and do you think that would be through anxiety? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I think when we sometimes when the things are happening in our head, it manifests itself in different parts of our body. And I know now if I ever feel anxious or worried about something, you know, it's all I always get is stomachache straight yeah. away. Wow. It's funny, isn't it? How your body's it trying is. to cope and make you aware of things. Because it's all joined up. But I think sometimes yeah. we ignore what's in our heads. It's very easy to like override feelings. Well, that's that, that's the, the trouble. You know, they, they, them feelings are warning us, aren't they? We've evolved to, to sort of block those feelings out. And yeah, sometimes you've just got to listen to what your body's telling you, haven't you? 
Yeah, exactly. And then that's the interesting thing for artists, I think. In a way, we're people that are quite well equipped to do that. We don't always use our logical brain when we're in the studio. Yeah. In fact, sometimes, you know, it, you have to turn it off and just yeah. trust what you're doing and not worry about what it is and just go with your feelings. So yeah. we should know better, actually. Than well, for, for, most, for most artists, if we use our logical brains, we we wouldn't be a bloody artist in the first place. <laughs> I know, I'd never trust my logical brain to do anything. Except, you know, I've learned that as I've gone through life as well. Charlie, don't think. <laughs> um, when was it you realised you wanted to be an artist, Charlie? Well, I, I said I've never wanted to do anything else with my time. Um, so I've never had other like dreams of a career. And I didn't grow up in a family where, ever, where anyone ever asked me what I wanted to do either. We never had those conversations at home. Um, so I didn't, I never even thought about it. You know, I just went through life thinking, well, I just want to carry on drawing. But I'm on this path, yeah, I'm going to stay yeah, on it. Exactly. But of course, you're not really supported in that as a kid. Certainly not when I was growing up, you know, in Birmingham, you know, it's, being an artist isn't really a valid career option. So yeah. I remember a kind of awkward conversation with the careers, you know, teacher at school. And I said, well, yeah, I want, you know, I want to be an artist. And of course, they were like, Charlie, that's not a proper job. <laughs> no. No. And I was told that because I was kind of quiet that I had the personality to be a librarian. So maybe I Brilliant. should look at that. And I just, even at the time, I was like, you just don't know me at all. That would clearly bore the shit out of me. I, you Could know, you I'm imagine trying... having a job where you have to sum up someone's personality in a, in a like a, a three minute conversation and know, give them so advice on the rest of their life? Yeah. I mean, what a dreadful job and how many lives are ruined by someone that just doesn't know people yeah. and gives out that sort of advice. Yeah, well, I was speaking to another artist who was from a working class comprehensive school and um, they wanted to be an artist and they was told, like, just go into construction. That's that's all you, you're going to do, you know. Everyone else in this school is doing construction, go into construction, you know, manual labour. And and he did for, for a few years. But they, um, yeah, the urge was pulling him towards the art and, yeah, it was it was that little bit of advice and implanting that bit of insecurity, you know, that that's all you're, all you're good for pretty much, you know? Yeah, it's really damaging, isn't it? And you know, people's, you have one life and you should be able to live it in, in, in an honest and authentic way doing what you want. I mean, what yeah. a tragedy if you, if you can't do that. Exactly. And what, um, did you go through the university journey? Yeah, so I did. I went to art school and actually, I mean, like the thing that really sort of saved me at school, because again, I hated being at school like a, like a lot of people, yeah. um, is I had a really amazing art teacher at school. Brilliant. Yeah, like the last couple of years I was at school, I spent all my time, all my lunch times, I would go into the art room and my art teacher was amazing. Like she was so cool. She had amazing, like kind of punky hair, like it was bleach blonde with pink and blue bits. Yeah you know, fucking amazing makeup. And she was like, so cool. Um, and she said, like, you've got real skill, you know, and you can go to art school and you can have a life where you carry on doing what you want to do. Uh, you know, and thank, thank God I had that presence in my life at that time, because, you know, maybe, maybe I'd have ended up in construction or something, or a library, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that would have been dreadful. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I did, I went, I went to university and I, Actually, that's probably where I started to feel like I'd really found my place in the world and yeah. started to find my people. Um, and did you do found sorry, did you do foundation then degree? 
I did a foundation and then I did a degree and at my degree show, I mean, like I was freaking out because I didn't want to get a, a proper job. I didn't know what the hell to do. And then luckily um, someone came to the degree show that worked at another university and they, they were giving away, which doesn't happen now, bursaries to do an MA. So I got yeah. a bursary to do an MA, which was paid for by what used to be called the European Social Fund, which clearly we're never gonna have access to it. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so that I was, I was very, very lucky. And you know, I didn't expect or think about doing that, but it was just kind of offered to me. And of course I- What, what year was the MA? Did you start your MA? Can you remember? Uh, well, yeah, late 90s. Got you. I think. Yeah. yeah. I was just trying to think when they stopped doing that. Yeah. Um, that, that sort of gifting, more or less. Yeah. I think probably the gifting stopped when fees came in. Yeah. I mean, I was, um, I think I had. I got a student loan. I think I might have had a grant for one year, but then after that, they they were phasing grants out, and yeah. it was a student loan. So I had I had a loan and had to pay it back at some point. Brilliant. And then after my MA, again, I didn't really know what the hell to do to make money. So I got a dreadful like arts admin job, and realised I was absolutely appalling at like filling in spreadsheets and databases because <laughs> I can't count. I can't like I don't read on the screen very well, and it was awful so I thought I'm gonna to have to sort this shit out so I can make some money well I think that I think the person that should question their job is the one that employed you absolutely <laughs> right. exactly. clearly it should have taken like two seconds of me sitting up there <laughs> confused and upset for them to know that I don't know what I'm doing but anyway I did that for a bit and then I ended up um somehow managed to get a bit of part-time teaching and then through that, I was offered the chance to either they were going to pay me to do a proper teacher training course or to do a PhD. Yeah. And I thought, I, I don't really want to be a professional teacher. I don't mind doing a bit of teaching because it's quite quite fun. I like working with you know other people. Um, so I did I did a PhD. It took me six and a half years to do it part time, wow. which was you know I would never I would never make that sort of commitment to something like that again. It was kind of hardcore. And how heavy was it the the PhD? I mean, it was difficult. I mean, I think sometimes doing it part-time is worse because you're trying to have a life at the same time. And I remember most of that six and a half years, I did a lot of sleeping, which weirdly isn't part of my character. I don't <laughs> sleep much, but <laughs> Jesus, the amount of times I'll pick up a book I was meant to be reading and just pass out. It Brilliant. would be like, again, like my brain was just telling me maybe this isn't the best yeah, thing yeah. in your time. Um, and just constant guilt of not reading my way through all the books that were stacking up by the side of my bed. Um, I mean, it was okay. I'm glad I did it. I got good at writing because of doing it, but I realized it's not really that academic world isn't right for me. I find yeah. it hard to concentrate. You know, I don't have the kind of mind that is still, it's whirring around all the time. And I'd go to conferences where I was meant to be sitting there making notes. I wouldn't listen to a damn thing. I'd just be daydreaming or doodling in my in my notebook. Yeah. Thinking about your next painting. Thinking about the next thing I was going to make. Exactly. Or almost anything else in the world. Just not thinking about Heidegger or you know Deleuze or whatever the hell I was meant to be listening to. And I still can't read that stuff properly. Yeah. It takes me four attempts to read like one paragraph. I'm with you. I'm with you. Sense of it. Yeah. It's not right. But you know, I did it, and like you know, I'm pleased I did it. But I don't think I really own, you know, the doctor title. I, I feel a bit like I don't know. It's all right, but it's not. It's not clothes I wear comfortably. No. And what was what was your PhD on? I wrote in the end about um, 
Freud's theory of the uncanny and ideas about internal space within within art, which I mean, I wrote myself into a huge corner and started and was making the most boring work of my life because I had to justify it through what I was writing. Yeah. Which, again, there's a really uncomfortable relationship with me for me between studio practice and like academic theory. I can write about other people's work and that's interesting. If I write about what I'm doing, it turns into something illustrative and boring and pointless and too logical. It's that thing we were talking about earlier where the creative brain isn't a logical linear thing. And yet the sort of the critical analytical brain that you need for a PhD completely is. And I don't think I ever really got those two things to sit comfortably together. Yeah. So I don't know, weirdly now, I can see some of the stuff I was thinking about and writing about coming back into my work, but in a much more organic and natural way. And yeah. I think maybe that's that's good. Maybe it's just taken me quite a long time to work through some of that stuff in a way that makes sense to me. And making sense to me is just being in the studio, chucking paint around and spending time by myself and just you know feeling my way through things. Charlie. Uh, which piece that you've created has got the strongest emotional connection? Oh, God, that's such a good but difficult question, actually. OK, this might this might be a really weird and convoluted answer. When I make stuff in the studio, it's like the emotions come from the inside out rather than it being a connection at the end that I oh, yeah. bring to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. When the, I think when we when we're in that kind of creative like mindset, when I'm painting, definitely I do as far as possible empty my conscious mind. So I'm not thinking of necessarily what I'm doing. And memories and feelings and stuff kind of flows in and out. So it's like an emotional process, but not one that I'm necessarily aware of or connecting explicitly to what I'm making. Oh, nice. And that so I don't fit and when they're finished it's not like I'm like oh you know it's not like giving birth to a child you know oh, that's one of my creations it's not like that for me they're, they're, they're paintings their work that I make you know it's what I do professionally and I'm interested in them but I don't think I necessarily feel emotionally connected to them because I think it's just me and the painting that are having a relationship but what is different when I make work is when I might be making work where other people are involved. And then that becomes much more of like an, an emotional experience because there's other humans there. So where yeah. I've made like where I've painted murals or, you know, paintings on walls and I've had other people working with me to facilitate that, you know, that's that's much more of an experience where I do it. And I. You know, I feel it inside. So when I did the work with hospital rooms in um in a in like a children's psychiatric ward, I mean that that was totally like emotional because I was in a in a locked like a forensic referral unit. So it's like young kids, eleven to eighteen, who'd been in touch with the criminal justice system but weren't well enough to go, you know, into a young yeah, offender. Yeah. But they, it was basically like a locked hospital. And of course, that was hugely emotional. There was children there, you know, that had been sectioned. I didn't even realise you could be sectioned when you're 11. Um, you know, and we were locked in a room painting and you could hear them outside. And I mean, you would know that very familiar sound of very heavy doors being yeah. shut, keys turning. And that's all. It wasn't like a hospital, you know, and you could hear these little kids voices and they sounded like children. 
So that experience, I think when I get out of the studio and I'm making work in another space, that is the stuff that is like moving in a, in a much more kind of obvious way. Yeah. Similarly, I think the painting I did at Facebook recently, and I think people might find that quite strange because some people said, you know, I'd sold out by doing a painting at Facebook. But for uh, yeah, I know. But you know, <laughs> I think that felt like where I've had that, it's like quite an entitled position. So for me, things like social media have really helped me have a voice in a world where, you know, I don't I don't work within the gallery system. No, I'm independent of that. And I don't come from a kind of cultured family that has those connections that other people have. And so for me, things like Facebook and Instagram have allowed me to, you know, to be present. And actually for me, that experience was incredible. You know, I couldn't, I wouldn't be the artist I am now. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know I exist if it wasn't for something like Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. And for me, that that was really significant because it's like I'd been acknowledged by, you know, a community that had given me a bit of power, a bit of voice. Yeah. And I worked with great people. So I worked with um, the London Mural Company on that project. And they're such good guys to work with. It was, it was such a fun project. And I was actually proud of that. It's the biggest thing I've ever done, like physically the biggest thing. Yeah. And I just thought, yeah, you know what? That's, that's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself. And so for me, going back to your question, where emotion is involved, it's often where there's other people involved too. Can I ask, how did the job of Facebook come about? Well, I mean, that was one. It was one of those kind of magical moments that I just wasn't expecting. One day I had an email from someone that said they were from Facebook. Um, and it was a really long email. So I was like, reading time. It's like, yeah, but this has got to be a scam. So yeah. I got my credit card details in, you know, like, you know, because I, I thought, oh my God, someone's trying to fleece me. Yeah. But then I did a little bit of like Googling. So I looked up the person that sent me the email and it's like, oh, actually, this person appears to be legitimate. Yeah, so, there's a bit of truth in it possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we arranged to do like a Zoom meeting. Yeah, and lo and behold, it was Facebook that had, you know, probably seen my work online and got in touch and said, we'd really like you to paint this big wall that we've got in, our, you know, in one of our head offices, which... It, you know, it was like a dream. The, the problem was, though, this was in lockdown. So I think they contacted me mid-February. Um, then we had a little Zoom meeting. Then I did a site visit and had to um, give them a proposal for what I was going to paint within the next two days. And then I had to paint it the next week. Like from starting, Shit. from them getting in touch with me um, to it being signed off and finished was probably about three weeks, three and a half weeks. That shows the difference in the worlds, doesn't it? You know, their world is very rigid. In ours, we need we need time to grow and develop. Yeah, I know. And there just wasn't time. It was just like pure like reflex. It's like, because they said, well, if it's too short notice, we could find someone else. You could do a project for us later in the year. Of course not. You, you know what have. that's like. It's like there might not be a project later of in the course. year. So it, I can't not do this. And how, how big was the painting? Um, I think the wall was about 12 and a half metres. And it's like sort of double oh. story. Um, but I love it. Like <clears throat> seeing work on that scale changes, changes it, you know. And, and I think yeah. um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine your work. Like, so the canvas I've got behind me is like nearly two metres. Yeah, I was going to say, your paintings are quite large anyway. Yeah, they 
Sure, but that's a large painting on the canvas, but it's not a massive wall, yeah. you know, with lumpy, sticky out bits and pipes and lights to, to deal with. And actually, I quite enjoyed the sort of architectural problems of working on walls where you have to work around what's what someone else has put there. Yeah. Like a canvas is a rectangle, basically. You know where you are, you know, and you can put whatever you want within it and it's not going to change how you see the shape of the canvas. It's just a rectangle that's yeah, going to be wall. But a real wall that has different types of like, you know, projections and features. Yeah, yeah. I love I that challenge. And for me, actually making work where real people see it is really meaningful to me. Great that if people buy canvases, but they're generally people with a lot of money that can afford to buy a painting and, yeah. and put it in their house or their bank vault or, you know, wherever they put it, I don't know. But, you know, making work that people see every day, you know, and it, they can spend time with it and it might, it might improve or change or, you know, um, inspire them while they're going about their everyday existence. Actually, I love that. And I think that's where the power of, of art lies, you know, in how yeah. it touches real people. And I'm really interested in that. And I really believe that art you know, changes people's lives. Yeah. Great if, you know, your peers or, you know, gallery goers enjoy and recognise what you do. But, but for me, if your, you know, your legacy or, you know, or what you make impacts on people who are from outside of that world, that's even better. You know, yeah. I, I love I that. I agree. And what, what sort of comments have you, have you heard any comments about doing it for Facebook? Uh, well, yeah, weirdly, and that this is how life is strange sometimes. So I did a commission for someone over the summer who just got in touch through Instagram and said, oh, my, it's my friend's birthday. They really like your work. Um, could you do, you know, can we come can come to an arrangement so you can make like a, a little painting for him? And I said, yeah, that would be great. So I did this painting for this. I mean, I didn't know who the guy was or his name or anything. It went off, you know, in the back of a van. Didn't, you know, didn't hear much else. And then he got in touch and he said, oh, you've done this painting for me. And guess what? I went into work today because the office has reopened and your painting is on the wall of Facebook. And isn't that crazy? It's just like the world is so small. Yeah. That, you know, I'd inadvertently done a commission for someone that works at Facebook <laughs> within the space of about two months of the painting finished. Brilliant. <laughs> What do you do to relax? Oh, God. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> the, the R word. I, I mean, I'm not really a relaxing kind of person. Yeah. I, I find it, I mean, I find it really hard to sort of switch my head off. It, 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 you know, there's a lot going on in there most of the time. So I'm, and I'm not someone that can you know go wants to go for a walk in the country and breathe the fresh air that makes me feel very bored very quickly <laughs> yeah. I like my brain being busy and stimulated so yeah and, and I hate being bored so like the kind of you know relaxing things a bit of a trigger for me I'm like oh god it instantly makes me feel like oh I don't want to relax <laughs> but I guess um when I'm not in the studio and to maybe try to calm down which is maybe a better way to to, to say it um I mean, I, over lockdown, I've really, you know, liked walking. And I think I've started to value the experience of just walking through the city and looking at things quite slowly. Yeah, nice. So, yeah, just like zipping around a million miles an hour, which is my natural kind of speed of doing things. Um, 
and yeah and just like you know I value the time I have with good people so whether that's like going to the pub with friends or chatting on the phone with someone that I really care about for me that that helps me calm down and get out of my own head for a little bit oh, I agree I totally agree Charlie if there was you and five other artists past and present what would your ideal group show be Oh, that's hard, isn't it? Um, because I can't make decisions very easily. <laughs> if you ask me that in 10 minutes' time, I'll have another five. Um, okay, let me think. Uh, I would say... I'm going to choose people that I'm probably unlikely to ever be in a show in. Of with. course. I, I, because either they're dead or, you know, just, you know, completely untouchable. So I think... Um, Definitely like one of the great female abstract expressionists. So I'll go for Lee Krasner because she's so cool and funny. If you yeah. hear her being interviewed, she's such a badass. I think she's great. And she put up with Pollock. So do you know what I mean? She deserves a medal just for that. <laughs> so I think Lee Krasner, and I really love the stuff that she did, those massive like paper collages where yeah. she was ripping yeah. stuff, off, stuff off of the studio floor and like remixing it. Because I think I like remixing things. So I think I'd have like one of her big collage remix paintings. Um, okay. And someone like, because I love that period in art history, the kinds of, you know, 50s, 60s, post-war American stuff, sort of high modernism. It's my favourite point in art history. So I'll go from someone else at that time that did something quite different. So um, add Reinhardt. So I love his paintings that look like they're just black rectangles but when you spend time with them there are these very subtle like dark blue or dark red shapes in them but you have to really look at them to see that yeah and that slow reveal is obviously the very opposite of what I do I have no subtlety I'm not even going to pretend <laughs> yours is an explosion isn't it <laughs> his is a slow reveal and I think that would be like an interesting comparison um, and he uses very like dynamic, like hard shapes, like crosses and squares within the rectangular format. And it's so simple, but so clever at the same time. So him. And then I would go for something a bit poppy. So maybe I'm just trying to decide maybe Jeff Koons, but people hate him. But that's quite interesting, I think. Oh, no, you know what? I think Ashley Bickerton, because I really like his Susie series, which are the sort of metal constructions with all the brand logos on and symbols and motifs. And they're super cool. And I like that they're actually painted onto bits of metal that might reference appliances or car yeah, bonds. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, they, they're very, like, mechanised, and I like that. So him. Um... Okay, someone more contemporary, Corey Archangel, who uses a lot of technology in his work. Um, I don't use technology, I use paint. And I'm really quite, although we've talked about coding and computers, that's a very hobbyist <laughs> interest that I have. It's not anything I can actually do. But he does amazing stuff where he like hacks into old like Game Boy cartridges and makes really cool work. And he has a piece of work called um, Super Mario Clouds where he's just hacked into a cartridge and the artwork is like a projection in a room or on a big screen. And it's just the clouds from Super Mario just moving across a blue sky. And in a way, we were just talking about skies. So that's good. Maybe that's <laughs> in my mind. And then the final person I would choose is... Ah, um, oh, yeah, so Ava Hesse's machine drawings. Oh, Love okay. Them. So 
Ava Hesse obviously better known for her sculptures, but she did an amazing series of machine drawings that were these kind of random bits of tubes and pipes, but connected to bits of drawing that looks quite bodily. So it's like the connection between something organic and something again, like man-made or constructed. Yeah, yeah. And I think they're really beautiful. They're, they're not huge drawings, the little ink drawings, they're very kind of sensitively done. Um, so yeah, I th is that five? I've lost count. That is definitely. <laughs> okay, cool. You mentioned Corey Archangel, the, the work um, that is sort of like related to Mario or even even computerized mm. your work would sit very well alongside there wouldn't it yeah i think so and i mean it's interesting i'm so i think without even knowing it or understanding it influenced or fed by you know the language of computers even though it's not something i'm very good at or confident with i think it just sort of goes back to a time in my life where computing like early home computing was such an exciting thing it like spoke of like the you know the possibilities of the future well i can't um, i can't stop seeing that in your work now you've said that like when you said it earlier as a pre-teen i presume pre-teen yeah. doing the programming um i can't stop seeing that in your work now that's that's what i see yeah, and I wonder, I mean, I don't know what that connection is for me, because it's not like I, I work with computers, I really can't, I've got no patience for them whatsoever now, you know, I couldn't do any coding now, it would drive me, you know, nuts. But there's, and maybe it's because it was a particular time in my life where I was becoming more independent, or I just found something really interesting, and it was bringing... It was new technology to a child, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it was fascinating, you know, that there was this like box in your bedroom that, you know, you could press a button and it came to life. And, you know, it did the weird and wonderful things. Um, and again, I suppose inside a computer for a kid is a whole world. It's like yeah. an imaginary world where you play games and you talk to it, you're giving it instructions and it, it feeds back with something. So I suppose actually, if I think about it now, it's not that different to having a rectangular piece of paper and drawing your own world. It's a rectangular screen where you yeah. just enter it in a different way. So probably it's not that far removed from, you know, my love of drawing as a yeah. kid. You know, I mean, what would the process be of that painting behind you from blank canvas? Yeah, so, uh, so I start, so I don't plan my paintings at all. I'm I got not... the sense of that when you were saying about you, when you approach a, a white canvas, it did feel like you was telling me that you saw you and the canvas grow together. And then once that's done, it's next white canvas. Yeah, exactly. Like job done. And then what's next? And I think the way I work actually allows for that relationship. It's like every painting I make has, you know, the potential of a thousand different paintings within it. Cause I make yeah. decisions all the time I'm making it. So it could be it, this one behind me could be, could have been completely different. Yeah. So I find, uh, like a lot of artists, like the blank page, the blank canvas can be quite an intimidating thing. You know, you've got work to do, but what the hell is it going to be? Um, so I always have to start with colour. Colour for me is the thing that really gets my creativity going. So I'll have a canvas, I'll just put a flat layer of usually like a mid-tone colour. And I, I don't overthink that. It will just be... I'll think in terms of colour temperature. So do I want it to be a hot painting or a cold painting? Yeah, so it'll be like, you know, mid-tone red, mid-tone orange, mid-tone blue, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, then after that, I will I, I sort of vary the tone or the colour around the edges. And, and I do that either with um, 
paint sprayed through a spray gun or sometimes I use just acrylic spray paint in a can because it's already pre-mixed and it's quite easy and quick yeah. to use. And then that creates these kinds of colour fields across the canvas, which instantly gives you like spatial depth. Yeah. So it stops it being a flat plane and it makes you see depth and shape within it. Um, and then what I do is I create shapes on the canvas again without thinking. So I just mix up some paint. Um, I always use acrylic paint because it dries quickly because I've got no patience for oil. And also <laughs> I, like, I like how simple acrylic paint is and I really have no patience for anything. So, you know, no surprises that I can't use oil paint. So I mix up paint so it's quite quite runny, but also uh, has enough kind of like pigment in it that it's going to make a nice impactful colour. Yeah. And I'll literally just chuck it on the canvas and move it around with a big palette knife. To, so the paint creates its own shapes. And I'm, this won't be any good for your podcast, cost this is, but I'm just gonna turn my camera around so you can see those. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're ones that are at that stage and they'll have some more bits of paint thrown on them once I finish talking to you. <laughs> and then once I've got these kind of arbitrary shapes on the canvas, I'll start to be a bit more thoughtful and responsive. So for me, it's like action, reaction when I'm painting. Um, and from those shapes, I'll start to build like a kind of architecture around it. So I'll think about, I don't know, I, I say think about, that's not right. I'm not thinking, I'm feeling, responding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have an idea of a kind of shape that needs to react to that. And it'll invariably, because that will be like a gestural shape, it'll be the opposite. I work with opposites quite a lot. So it'll be like a hard edge shape, like a rectangle or, you know, like, like the ones behind me, like a sort of hexagon. And I like to make shapes that, you know, they're abstract. It's not meaningful in a way, you know, you are just seeing shapes and color on a canvas, but I will also think about where you might have seen those shapes before or something like it. So, you know, as well as vintage computer graphics, I always, as a kind of teenager, loved sci-fi book, book covers, and um, I grew up in Birmingham where there was a big metal scene. So like, you know, me and my friends used to like listen to like heavy metal music at the weekends. And so I had a job once where I was painting on the back of leather jackets and like recreating, oh, yeah. yeah, like sort of metal album artwork. And, you know, and I love, I love minimalist sculpture, which is often like kind of metallic and, and yeah, hard, yeah. heavy looking. And for me, I use a lot of those references and maybe, you know, shapes that I find on the internet like sort of 90s vector graphics. So they're, they're shapes from like abstraction, abstract language, but they're shapes that are treated in a way that are maybe of the real world. So I'm mixing up the, the imaginary world and yeah, something yeah. that is like historical and known. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. And weirdly though, the things that I put in last in the paintings are the things that look like they're in the background. So in the painting behind me, the grid, the sort of turquoise grid that was painted last even though it's behind everything else yeah. so I have to mask off everything in front of it and then put the background in last and that's usually the bits that hold the composition together so it just feels like it's balanced you know and then I then it feels like oh I know I'm done now I, mean, I haven't got a clue throughout the whole process what it's going to be like and do you decide to put that is that always the last thing if you're going to have a grid in it is it always last always last whereas I think a lot of people might start with a grid you know, yeah. the conventions of painting are that you might grid off the canvas if you're going to like reproduce something that you've done as a sketch. But 
for me it's backwards I have to put the more structured stuff in last and all the like crazy chaos has to come first so it's like I'm organizing chaos in the studio so, I never know what it's going to be until it, it feels like it's done I like the idea that exactly what you've just told me works perfectly for you 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 mentioned at the very start of this that you um you go and teach at art schools if you was listening to what you just said what, what advice would you give on painting? Would you say, like, there's an easier way to do this? You know? <laughs> oh, my God, there's a much easier way yeah. to do most things in life than the route I take. But, you know, that's that's a topic for another podcast. No, like, I think, honestly, it's, it's sort of what you just said. Yeah. You have to find your way of doing things, you know. Yeah. For some people, working to a plan is what they need to do. They need to have sketches. They need to, you know, do, like, little versions of something and then scale it up. They need to plan. And some types of painting need that. Some types of painting and types of brains can't do that, can't plan. You have to be in the painting and making it happen. Yeah. And, you know, as I've got older and gone through life, I can understand, you know, really, I mean, like, it's where that thing about what is abstract and what is an expression and where are you within the painting. So my brain is not a planning brain, although my work ends up looking quite precise. It, you know, it's the way I make my paintings is entirely how I function. So yeah, I have um, a neurodivergent brain. I have ADHD. It never slows down. And I can't make a painting that looks like all one thing. It's got fucking everything chucked in it because that's what makes me excited and makes me want to paint. It's yeah. like it's different. It's full of different new shiny things every time. I can't make the same painting over and over again even though there's shared motifs across them, everyone is like a unique thing. And I can't sit down knowing I have to do something and do it. I just won't do it. Yeah. You know, That's not the way I'm wired up. I have to come in here and work it out as I go and do what I want to do. And thank God I have a job where I can do that. Excellent. And that's the thing. That's the thing I love because it works perfectly for you and you wouldn't be able to do it in and a more logical way if you like it wouldn't work for you I'd do nothing or I'd do something crap and hate it you know and bore myself to tears in the process yeah yeah like the biggest advice I could give to anybody you know starting to like develop their practice at art school or at home or wherever you're doing it is give yourself time to work out who you are and how your work relates to the bits of you that come from inside yeah, yeah, once you've got that in line, it makes sense. You know, you cannot copy someone else's work or do things in the way you're meant to do them or yeah. read in a book or that you see on a YouTube video. I completely think that's a waste of time. Just be with your work, making it, and it will come out of you in the end. It would, it would be much quicker for me to make paintings if I knew what I was doing before I started instead of <laughs> standing around looking at them for hours thinking... Oh, well, you know, I could have a square in this corner, you know, and then and then that's when I do like little sketches, although the sketches would make no sense to anybody. They're just like scribbles. Well, how are you, Charlie, with the, like for the Facebook commission, for instance, they must have known what they wanted, even if it was colour. Yeah. So <clears throat> I mean, those, those sort of jobs are a little bit different because as well, when you're working with a team of people that are going to paint with you, you know, I couldn't, I would never walk into a room and like waft around saying, well, like, you know, I'm just going feel what I, well, let's do what I feel like doing in 10 minutes time. Because that's not fair on anybody. No. 
if you're meant to be having a professional relationship with them you know and you know if someone's paying you to do a painting they want sort of want to know what they're going to get so those sort of things I do have to prepare some sort of sketch or plan and that's that's fair enough but I can only do that again by working it out from a blank piece of paper so yeah Facebook started on post-it notes on my kitchen table because if I'd come here to do it and it's like we were saying to plan to do something I wouldn't have done anything I'd have stared out the window or eaten biscuits or whatever just to just to not do it so what I had to do with that was sit on the bus trying to think about something else and then I do little sketches in a post-it note then I go home and refine them a bit more then I thought they looked shit so I went for a walk and then somehow on the way back I sort of realized how I should change it and then from that I just kind of in I did it in photoshop just again blank canvas and then put color on it and then took my drawings and tried to make sense of them onto that color so I was just moving blocks of color around on the screen for quite a long time until it started to hang together as something that looked cool yeah like a digital collage sort of thing yeah exactly and I think you know my brain works in collages my thoughts are collages yeah no again it's not a linear process it's stuff from lots of different angles all at once that's these are conversations that you have with students quite often where you know they will say I'm thinking of doing you know a painting of whatever or I'm thinking of making an installation and it's going to be like this now it's so problematic if they don't just show you something because what people see in their imaginations is not going to be the same as what I see you know I'm a very positive person and everything feels exciting and great to me you know, unless I've realised it's shit, in which case, you know, I'm yeah, really of course. But generally, if someone says, oh, I'm thinking of doing this, and I'm like, fucking great, I can't yeah. wait to see that. But it's a pointless conversation because I'm talking about what I can see in my head and not the piece of work that they're thinking of making. So I'm yeah. critiquing myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not what that exchange is about. So, <laughs> like, visual people need to see stuff. Otherwise, thoughts don't exist. Of course, of course. If you wasn't an artist, Charlie, what would you like to be? <laughs> My God. So that's like impossible because I can't imagine. I think... Um, oh, please tell me librarian. No, I would never. <laughs> I would be the worst librarian. I'd be so bad. <laughs> um, I think I would. Okay, so if it's something else creative, this probably might sound weird. I might be a hairdresser because I like... I'm always cut like my friend's hair and like... Um, over lockdown, I had like some really cool haircuts that I did myself. And I quite like that because it's creative and fun. Yeah. But at the same time, maybe I wouldn't like standing up all day, touching other people's hair. So actually, that's probably not what I would do. Um, I think I might. I tell you what, I really love watching those TV programs like um, like about like forensic psychology and getting inside the mind of serial killers, which sounds a bit bleak. But I, I find it really fascinating how. You know, we go through life experiencing stuff and, you know, whether we know it or not, it changes us like incrementally. We carry all that stuff around through life. And I think that's amazing because often when you when you read about or you, you find out about people that have done sometimes dreadful things, they've had shit lives. You know, yeah. very few people are, are born evil, I think. And I think that's it's really interesting to start to understand what goes on in people's heads. And also, I, I'd lo- yeah, I'd love that. I know, I, you know, I'm really interested in, yeah, just psychology and um, 
yeah, forensic stuff. Like I, I'm bloody over lockdown. I completely binged on like 20 seasons of Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no I paintings got done. This could be my alternative life, you know, just kind of, <laughs> you know, in New York solving crimes. You know, Brilliant. Yeah. Charlie, what have you got coming up? Uh, so at the moment, uh, I suppose, um, in a way, winding down for this year and just looking forward to sort of 2022. Um, so I'm making some new paintings for London Art Fair. Um, so I'm showing in a store that's curated by Virginia Dampster. So that will be at the end of January. So that's what I'm really focusing on in the studio at the moment. Um, and I've got a couple of other like shows booked in for next year as well. Some interesting collaborations where I might be painting on some unusual surfaces for some different brands so that will be cool Excellent. and maybe you know i might drop an nft who knows oh, well okay i might okay i mean people keep saying oh you should because you know the digital thing and i'm like yeah great but i don't really understand how to do that yet but then you know i had a i've got a potential meeting about that soon so you know maybe maybe that oh you've got to use that's where your facebook comes in handy isn't it eh isn't it? I know, exactly. So yeah, I, I, in a way it feels like, you know, I've got lots of stuff coming up. Next year I think will be busy and things thankfully feel like they're livening up a bit now. So that's good. Brilliant. Brilliant. And and as is the world, the world's coming out of that little dark stage, isn't it, hopefully? And Yeah, it feels exciting, doesn't it? And yeah. London's getting busier. So, you know, it feels like even to begin with, it was still a bit sleepy, but I don't know, in the last couple of weeks, it, it started to feel a bit like people are getting out. Yeah. And collectively, going back just a few weeks on the factory project, um, I mean, that was just a, an explosion of art, wasn't it? That was so good. I mean, like, I was so pleased that I was part of that. It was an amazing experience. And I think, you know, very much of the time, I hope and I think and I believe that actually artist relationship with with galleries has changed quite a lot over lockdown and I hope to see more of these kind of independent cool like edgy projects going on that exist outside of you know Mayfair yeah um, you know it was brilliant you know I so, so I caught up with so many people that I obviously hadn't seen for about two years and you know and people that I probably found over lockdown on Instagram and then met them in real life that's it what was, I was going to say that there were so many people that I knew well but never met. It's, it's, yeah. It was bonkers because I'd only met them in that 18 months before. Yeah, but it was an amazing project, wasn't it? And like just so such a positive, you know, vibe setting everything up. And um, and we had amazing weather, like for the opening afternoon. It was so good, wasn't it? Was it? Lucky, like, wasn't outside it? and, you know, really good. Do you think, although the artists are feeling that there's a difference with the gallery artist relationship, do you think the the gallery has noticed it as well? Oh, I hope so. I bet, but probably not. You know, a lot of big evil galleries won't care anyway. No, well, they're always going to be there. Yeah. As are the lower end galleries. Yeah. It's the middle ground. That's the, the big area that I think is going to substantially shift. I mean, I do. And I think that's good. And I think good galleries will have adapted and sort of, you know, acknowledged what's happened you know I mean lockdown I think has been good for a lot of artists we've got a bit of power back which yeah. is great there is a or way realized how much power we could have yeah and that's amazing you know that's a really positive thing that you know particularly like coming together and working collaboratively and supporting each other 
we're a much stronger network than I think a lot of us realised before yeah. before lockdown. Well, that's that's the problem with all of us being in studios. We're all like solitary little animals, aren't we? Yeah. And we we finish a painting and then just hand it to someone to take fifty percent or add fifty percent onto it and they deal with it. So, yeah. you know, in a way it could be us being a little bit lazy in sales, for instance. And then all of a sudden, when them people aren't there anymore, we've all got to go, oh, hold on a minute. We can either give to the artist support pledge and hope that someone else buys it, you know, or we can um, get off our backsides and try to sell it ourselves, you know. I know. And you know what? Because I think before lockdown, I was always a bit like, oh, you know, I'm not selling. No one's selling enough of my paintings. You know, they're in shows and then they come back to the studio and like, oh, poor me. But actually, it, it did me a lot of good. Yeah, good. You know, and I've learned a lot about how to sell stuff. Excellent. Not enough. Yeah, there's no. still paintings behind me that no one bought. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It just gives you a little bit of like, um, I don't know, kick up the arse. It's yeah. like actually you can't rely or trust people to sell yeah. your stuff. And you know, if you sell it yourself, you don't have to give 50% of the money away. It's exactly. bloody great. Why didn't I know this sooner? <laughs> well, that's what done. Uh, when I got back into the into creating art again, that's what fucked me at the start, is because I was giving it the price that I wanted to sell it at. And then when it come to me doing a show in a gallery, they said, well, you can't sell it at that price because we need our 50%. So I'm either going to lose half of what I've got it up for already, which was a, a, a good price all round, a reasonable yeah. price for everyone. All of a sudden, I've got to add 50% onto my price. And then that, you know, that's fine for, for the gallery while they're selling it. The rest of it, I've got to sell myself at their prices. Yeah, that's so, it. And that's it, how I shot myself in the foot. It becomes difficult. You can't, because you don't have those people with that money. They, the yeah. galleries know those people. I don't. You know, I know, you know, kind friends that, yeah. you know, <laughs> that are not going to have that much money. No, it's, it's a hard one. But yeah, yeah hopefully it's going to shift. But Charlie, how can people see your work, be it social media or website? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much all over social media because I, I love it. You know, it's a really good way for me to connect to people yeah. and have conversations around what I'm doing and what other people are working on, too. So I love it. So on, on Instagram, I'm at Charlie Peters. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Charlie underscore Peters. Um, of course, I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> and my website is charliepeters.com kind of easy to find me yeah. you're not you're not gonna have to struggle as to long as you me. spell charlie correctly yes with an ey <laughs> exactly. so get that spelling right otherwise i don't know who you're gonna find <laughs> no all right well charlie that's all my questions asked oh it's been such a good chat thank you very much for your time i've absolutely loved speaking to you and yeah, getting to know so you much fun. thank you speak to you soon see you later bye-bye Bye. there we go charlie peters didn't i tell you it was going to be a good conversation Thank you for your time, Charlie. And we had a great chat after the podcast finish, the contents of which is nothing to do with you. But what is to do with you is my festive greetings. This podcast would have been released on the 20th of December. So I'd just like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, really. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you have a lovely weekend. I look forward to seeing you all on the other side of it. All the best. ta well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're unable to support us on Patreon, 
leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media anything is appreciated but either way thanks for listening and until next week sad art Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.